Well, I'm grateful to uh, bring you God's Word this evening. I want to bring you the warm greetings from Heritage Reformed and Puritan Reformed Seminary. I want to thank you for supporting the seminary and for housing so many of our theological students who attend here. We're grateful for that. Even this evening I heard that one of our students had a child baptized here this morning, so that's a, that's a great thing as well. May God bless you, bless your pastors, your church, your families, and bless His Word tonight. I want to read with you from Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, 31 rather, 19 through 31 from Romans 3. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So far the reading of God's precious and sacred word. Well, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is perhaps the high point, the bona fide identification of the Protestant Reformation that we commemorate in its 500th anniversary this year. The rediscovery of this simple yet profound and unbelievably wonderful doctrine unleashed an incalculable force throughout Europe and beyond. At a time when Satan was hovering over Europe, over that continent, saying, Europe is mine. God brought light into the soul of Martin Luther, and through the discovery, or should I say rediscovery, of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone, Reformation broke out, and it transformed the face of the entire European continent. And today, that doctrine is under attack again. 
we urgently need to elevate this precious doctrine again for many reasons. For one, it doesn't only lie at the heart of the gospel. Justification by faith alone is the gospel. It concerns our right standing with God. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. And there's nothing more that we need than justification by faith alone. Nothing more to look for. No second blessing. If we have this, we have everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is also important because it's the greatest antidote to heresy. Every single major error in the church is somehow connected with the distortion of justification by faith alone. And then thirdly, justification is important because it's an incentive to a revived church. Whenever the Lord sends reformation or revival, there's always a revival, a restoration of justification by faith alone all throughout biblical history as well as church history. And then justification by faith alone is also important because it resolves a lot of pastoral problems, problems related to lack of assurance of faith, uh, inability to handle trials Christianly, to mention just two of them. And finally, justification by faith alone is important today because so many so-called Christians don't understand what it means. It needs to be preached. It needs to be made clear because so many think that somehow they are still contributory themselves to their own salvation rather than receiving it by faith alone. So in the Reformation, the five great solas, salvation through Scripture alone, by faith alone, in grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, is really the hallmark, the collection of doctrines grounded in justification that stand at the very center of the Reformation movement itself. And so tonight, I want to look at that with you from Romans 3, particularly verses 23 through 28. 23 through 28. Right now, I'm going to just read this, verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So the question we ask tonight is, how are you justified before God? And the answer is in my four points, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and for God's glory alone. And we want to look at each of those from verses 23 through 28. Now, it was back in the 1970s that E.P. Saunders, a professor of exegesis at Oxford University, published a groundbreaking book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And Saunders claimed that Luther got the Reformation wrong when he understood justification by faith alone to be a doctrine of grace alone. And that work led to a colossal influence upon Pauline studies and New Testament studies in general is now known, actually, as the Saunders Revolution. And it evolved into what you probably have heard of more commonly, the new perspective on Paul. 
And that new perspective on Paul has been gaining ground and currency over the last 20 to 30 years or so and was advocated by James Dunn, professor at Durham University, and most famously by N.T. Wright, who's taught at Oxford and Cambridge Universities and recently was installed as the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England in the UK. Then in 2002, another spin-off of the New Perspective, we witnessed the emergence of so-called Federal Vision Theology. And Federal Vision Theology, which was birthed out of Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church, particularly emphasizes the objectivity of the covenant and reacts strongly against personal, experiential Christianity as a perceived individualism of much modern evangelicalism. And it wages war against all kinds of areas of the Christian life by focusing on the fact that salvation is merely objective and that the covenant is everything. The covenant swallows up the need for personal regeneration, basically, in federal theology, federal vision theology. And so, if you're born into the church and you're baptized, as you had baptism this morning, the objectivity of the covenant pronounces a benediction upon your children and you treat them as saved because baptism saves. Now, you can see from this brief sketch where we're going here. We have a number of different strands, different streams, developing, gathering in evangelical churches, even Reformed churches in recent decades that are threatening the personal experience doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the Reformed tradition, following Paul, justification by faith alone is an objective truth But the Lord applies it spiritually to the soul so that you know a personal element in being saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Get that wrong, you get everything wrong. That's why J.I. Packer said, justification is like Atlas who bears the whole world upon his shoulders. If Atlas stumbles, the whole world comes crashing down. Now, Paul could not be plainer in Romans 3 as to what the doctrine of justification by faith really is. And the first thing he's about to establish is that justification by faith alone is always by grace alone. Look with me at verse 23 and 24a. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's setting these two things side by side. He's laboring in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to convince every Jew and every Gentile that he or she is a sinner that needs to be saved by God and by His grace alone. In fact, he ends his long, long explanation with a description of the natural man in verses 9 through 19. And it's it's a frightful picture. And then in verse 19, he says, 
All of these things are true because every man is born under the law and no one can satisfy the law. Everyone is guilty. And his conclusion in 3.19 is, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. So what Paul is saying is that you can't understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You can't understand the core essentials of the Christian gospel until you understand our relationship with the moral law of God and how we've come short of that law, how we've all sinned against it in thought, word, and deed, how we all have a bad heart and therefore have a bad record, how we all need to be born again, and we all need to be justified by faith alone. So Paul says in Romans 1 through 3, no matter who you are, you stand before an all-consuming God, and everyone is guilty. When God opens the books of the law, Every single one of us will have our mouths closed before God if we're not brought into His gospel and that gospel grace. The holy law of God, Paul says in Romans 1-3, through 3, is inflexible. And it comes to us from an immutable God. And that law embedded in the Ten Commandments reflects the very character of the immutable God. God. And so the first question we need to ask is, has your mouth, has my mouth ever been closed in guilt before God Almighty? You know, there was a great book written in the Middle Ages by a man named Anselm, one of the best books written in the Middle Ages, by the way. Anselm of Canterbury in England. And the book is simply called, Why God Man? Why did God have to become man? And what Anselm does in this book is he dialogues between himself, who's the seasoned pastor, the wise pastor, and a beginning Christian whose name is Bozo, someone who's just beginning to learn. His very name sounds like he's got a lot to learn. And so Bozo's asking all kinds of questions, and Anselm knows all the answers, and they're going back and forth, and Bozo keeps coming back to Anselm thinking, there must be something I can do to contribute to my own salvation. Anselm finally gets very frustrated with Bozo and says, Bozo, your problem is this. You have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of your own sin." You don't know how bad you are, Bozo. And that you need grace that comes one-sidedly from God. You need to be justified through Jesus Christ and His obedience, not your obedience. And so this is the grand secret of the Christian life, the grand secret of the gospel that Paul's unfolding here in Romans 3, 19 through 31. He says, every one of us have come short of the glory of God. And what Paul is proving is that all of us have been created to glorify God. That's our purpose of our creation in Adam. We had one purpose, to glorify God. That's why he put us here on earth. 
And what Paul is saying is, every one of us has besmirched that glory. We've robbed God of His own glory. Through sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the theme that runs through all these chapters and climaxes here in our text this evening. Paul is saying, you and I by nature have forgotten what we were meant to be. We were meant to be choristers in a great choir of praise, as you have in your church sign right now on the road. Let everyone that hath breath praise the Lord. That's what we were designed to do. But now, you see, because of sin, we believe the lie instead of the truth. We besmirch the glory of God. That glory is hidden from us. We've fallen short of the glory of God and never Ever, ever, says Paul, can we, through and by our own energy, reacquire the glory of God that we have lost in our tragic fall in Adam? And so when you are saved, and when the purpose of your life is turned around, and the center of your life now is soli deo gloria. How can I live for the glory of God? That happens only by sheer and amazing grace. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace and His alone. It's the only way to be saved. And you see, that's what Martin Luther saw in his tower experience, in his breakthrough experience, when he grasped hold of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's what separates the Reformation from the forerunners of the Reformation. See, the forerunners of the Reformation were very upset with all kinds of things going on in the Roman Catholic Church, which was very corrupt in the 14th, 13th, 14th, the beginning of the 15th, and, or the 15th and beginning of the 16th century. They got increasingly corrupt. People like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Peter Waldo, Thomas Bradbridge, Gregory of Rimini, they were all speaking out. The church needs to reform itself. And many of them came close to embracing the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but not quite. That's why they're called forerunners. It's the reformers, with Luther spearheading the movement and Zwingli right behind him. It's Luther who came to the breakthrough of Paul. We are justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so what Luther saw was that his righteousness was not at all in him. His righteousness came from outside of him. It came in and through Jesus Christ, applied to him, and received by faith. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith out of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. An alien righteousness, Luther called it, coming from outside of me, and then imputed to me when I receive it by God-given, spirit-worked faith. So outside of that justification, my life is just Ichabod. Ichabod means come short of the glory of God. We decay, we grow dim, we get poor and weak and die. There's no resources in us. We're alienated from God. Our righteousness must come from beyond ourselves, outside of ourselves, through redemption 
in Jesus Christ alone. And so it's completely grace. And grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. So Paul says it. We're justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're justified by faith, by grace alone, and we're justified in Christ alone. That's what he's saying. That's the second thing he's saying here. And so what Paul is doing, he's showing us that all of our justification is grounded Christologically. It's all in Jesus through the will of the triune God. Look at verses 24 and 25. Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, that is God the Father, has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So Paul's saying this. When we get saved, we're justified freely by grace in Christ Jesus. That comes free to us. It costs Christ everything, of course, because Christ is the propitiation of God. Now, propitiation is a fancy word that means someone that turns away the wrath of another. And so what Jesus does is he comes to do two things, two things that must be done for us if we're ever going to be saved, that we can never do for ourselves. And those two things, if they're done perfectly, satisfy the wrathful justice of God so that God can turn to us and receive us graciously in Christ Jesus. The first thing, and these two things, by the way, are what make up justification. Justification is a big word, boys and girls, but justification simply means this. When you're justified, either you or someone representing you has to obey the law perfectly. You can't get to heaven without perfect obedience. God won't let anything into heaven that's not perfect. Perfect obedience to the law. That's what we call Jesus' active obedience. He came into this world, and for 33 years, he actively obeyed the law completely. Every tick of the clock, every second of those 33 years, he loved God above all, first table of the law. He loved his neighbors himself, second table of the law. And he didn't do that for himself, did he? He didn't have anything to prove. He was perfect from eternity. He did that for sinners, Lost sinners, hell-worthy sinners, lawbreakers like you and me. But the second thing he did that needs to be done for us is that he wiped away all our sin through his passive obedience by taking the price of our sin, which is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Dying in our place, taking all the hell that we deserve, having it all compressed down on Him in His infinite God-man nature so that He could bear the entire price of our sin, close the gates of hell for us, open the gates of heaven 
because he took our hell upon himself and he gave us the heaven that he is and that he deserves. And so the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus Christ turned away the wrath of God with his perfect active obedience and his perfect passive obedience, obeying the law for us and paying for sin for us. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's what's being challenged by so many modern evangelical and even some Reformed preachers. And once we lose that, we lose the very heart of the gospel itself. Everywhere the Bible teaches us, you see, that the only way our sin can be dealt with is through the agony and bloody sweat of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking our death into the grave, tasting death for us, entering the lake of fire for us, going into the bottomless pit in the essence of his soul on Calvary as our substitute, in our place, as our head, suffering the wrath of a sin-hating God against us. So that the holy revulsion of a righteous God who cannot look upon sin would look upon his son and say, for my son's sake, I will have mercy upon you. You remember the story of David in in 2 Samuel 9 as a king? He, He called Mephibosheth, who was not of his royal bloodline. And Mephibosheth, of course, expected to die. That's what kings did when they got a new bloodline. They brought in all the relatives and they killed them all. He called Mephibosheth to come. Mephibosheth came and he bowed himself and he lay on his face before David, prostrate, and said, Behold, I'm your servant, right in front of his throne. And David looks down and astonishes Mephibosheth. And he says, For Jonathan's sake, with whom I made a covenant, I will have mercy upon you. And you see, that's what the greater David does. Really what God the Father does through the greater David. He looks down upon a poor sinner who believes in Christ alone for salvation and says, for Jesus Christ's sake, the greater Jonathan, with whom I have made a covenant, I will have mercy upon you. Poor, lame Mephibosheth. Sinful person that you are. And so there hangs our Savior, In the naked flame of his father's wrath on Calvary, wounded, bleeding, suffering, dying, no one there to catch his eye and through a glance to show how much they understand and know why he's hanging there. But there he hangs, naked, ghastly, with two other criminals, Forsaken of God, forsaken of man, forsaken of heaven, forsaken of earth, forsaken of hell. Even the sun won't shine upon him. Bearing our sin, dear believer, to the very bitter death of the cross. What a tragedy sin is. Bozo, you don't realize the magnitude of your sin until your soul encamps at Calvary. This is what God thinks of your sin and of my sin, my friend. That Jesus Christ had to empty himself and pour himself out and suffer and agonize and die as no one has ever had to do in the history of this planet in order to propitiate the wrath of God 
so that we can be justified freely by His grace. That's what Westminster Confession 11.1 said, which you just read moments ago. The Heidelberg Catechism has a similar statement where it says so beautifully that God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I had never sinned, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all the obedience, both the active and the passive obedience, which Christ has accomplished for me. Now, how do I get that great gift of God? How does that righteousness of Christ, that alien righteousness, get imputed to me? Well, the answer of Paul is through faith. Not through a faith that merits something, so you can say, oh, I'm really good, I believe in Jesus. No, through faith that is given to you by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2.8, and faith is therefore the means or the hand that receives this tremendous gift of God's salvation. Look at it with me from, from the text. Verse 22, unto all and upon all them that believe. Verse 25, Christ is a propitiatory sacrifice through faith. Verse 26, God is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27, on what principle is boasting excluded? On the principle of faith. Verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Five times in a row in our text, Paul just reinforces, 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 reinforces that we are saved through justification by faith alone. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, you only get into Christ by faith. And faith only gets into you. Christ only gets into you by faith. Think of it this way. If you were going through a desert, boys and girls, and you, and you, you, were, you were famished, you were so thirsty, so hungry, when you got to the other end, and someone came to you with a glass of water, but there was no way you could rip open the top But he said, here's a straw, and you could put the straw in, and you could drink. Oh, the water would be life-saving to you. But you wouldn't say, would you, I'm saved because of the merit of the straw. You'd say, I'm saved by the water of life. But the straw was the means that brought the water from the cup into your body. And you see, faith is like that straw. It drinks in Christ. It receives Christ. It gets no merit, no attention by itself. But faith is the hand that receives the gift of God. And you drink in the fullness of His salvation. By faith, we are united to Christ. We believe into Christ. Faith is not our Christ, but faith is how we receive Christ. So faith brings me into union and communion with Jesus. But we're justified by faith also, Paul says, so that no boasting ends up in us because faith is not a work. Faith is a gift of God. So we understand that our bonding to Jesus through faith contributes nothing to our salvation, but it's all His gift 
in all His grace. So faith, by very definition, means to refuse to rely upon myself and to rely entirely upon Him. Now, how does faith do that? Well, what happens experientially in the soul is something like this. When you see your sin and you see how you've broken every commandment of God, you deserve hell, you deserve to perish, and you have the gospel preached to you, and you begin to understand by the light of the Holy Spirit this wonderful news of justification through Jesus alone, and your heart wholeheartedly agrees with it, and you fall into the arms of the evangel, the arms of the gospel, and you flee with all your poverty to Christ's riches, and with all your soul's guilt to Christ as reconciler, and with all your soul's bondage to Christ as liberator, and you fall upon this gospel, and you trust it, and you receive it, and you say with top lady, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You are saved. Because faith puts all its trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you see, whether you experience it radically at that moment, whether it comes more gradually, is not the point. But you experience a pardon and a peace that passes all understanding. So you're not saved for believing. You're saved by believing. So in the application of justification, faith is not a builder or a contributor, but it's a beholder and a receiver. We're justified. By spirit-given faith alone. So faith closes with Christ. Faith grasps Christ in warm, believing embrace. Faith surrenders all of self to Christ. It clings to His Word. It relies on His promises. The Bible has a rich vocabulary for that. Faith is described as coming, as hearing, as seeing, as trusting, as taking, as embracing, as knowing, as rejoicing, as loving, as triumphing. Maybe Luther said it best of all. He said, faith is like a ring that grasps, or clasps, rather, that's his exact word, he clasps the diamond of the gospel, which is Jesus. Faith receives it, and then faith lives out of Christ. Christ is faith's only object, only expectation. And so faith commits your total person to the total Christ, to His total righteousness, so that God gets all the glory. And that's my last thought. You see what Paul says in verse 26, 27, and 28. It's all about God's glory, you see, for three reasons. 26, this demonstrates God's justice alone, so He gets glory in His justice because He justifies the ungodly. Numbers 27, all your boasting is excluded because you're justified by faith alone. Boasting is silenced on the principle of faith. You see, our, our boasting is not silenced simply because we failed. Our boasting is silenced because the very mechanics that God has created to bring us as justified sinners before Him leave no room for boasting in ourselves. Faith is an empty hand. 
Faith is a starving mouth. Faith is a broken heart. Faith silences boasting so that God gets all the glory. John Murray put it so well. I love this statement. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Now, once you're saved by faith, you will do good works as the fruit of salvation. But works is never part of your being saved. You're saved by justifying grace only in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Now let me close by bringing you a few practical applications. What this doctrine does for us. I've got six or seven of them very briefly and I'll close. Number one, the doing and the dying of Jesus. The doing and the dying. The doing, the active obedience to the law. The dying, the passive obedience, paying for our sin, is the only criteria for your and my acceptance with God. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a permanent possession of peace. We previously were God's enemies. A terrible position to be in. Now we are God's friends. A wonderful position to be in. God holds nothing against us. We have peace with Him through the doing and the dying of Jesus received by faith. Jesus' blood and righteousness is and always will be enough. You see, that's what Luther discovered. That's what we must know by hard experience. Can you do enough to please God? No, but Jesus can. And when Jesus does, and we receive Him, His enough is imputed to us. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Do you know that personally, my friend? Can you say before God tonight, the doing and the dying of Jesus is my 100% criteria of my acceptance with God. Number two, justification, therefore, as a believer, is my identity. When I think of myself as a Christian, I need to think of myself this way. By grace, I'm a justified man or woman or teenager or boy or girl. That defines who I am. And therefore, when I think of myself, I need to think of Romans 6.11. Or when I'm tempted to sin, I need to think of Romans 6.11. Reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because you see, I've got no business sinning. I'm justified in Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm to be a follower of Him. I'm to walk in His ways. I'm to, I'm to traverse the King's highway of holiness. And therefore, my entire life is to be dedicated to Him. That's my identity in justification. Thirdly, because justification is my total righteousness, because it's my total identity, it's also 
the means by which I have access into the grace of God wherein I stand, Paul goes on to say in Romans 5 verse 2. In other words, I'm not just made right with God, but God takes delight in me. God gives open access to me. Zephaniah says God rejoices over his people with singing. God delights in his people intensely. There's a smile on our father's face when he thinks of his children. So I have access through Christ before God to stand before him without shame and without embarrassment. Now, it's fascinating that the word access in Romans 5.2 is a rare Greek term, a classical Greek term, that means entrance into the king through the favor of another, so that you can stand before the king as a servant, standing in a posture of the servant saying, tell me what to do, Lord, and I will do it. And so when you're justified, you also will be sanctified. And you want to stand before, you have access to God through your justification, but you want to stand before Him and say, Lord, I don't belong to myself. I belong to my faithful Savior. I'm Thy servant. Show me which way to go. Tell me which way to do. I want to walk. I want to stand before Thee as a servant and live a servant's life before Thee, a willing slave, as Paul called himself. And then number four, justification not only helps our sanctification, is the ground of it. And sanctification, our holy living, not only reflects our justification, but also justification will help us to view all our trials properly. Paul goes on to say in Romans 5 verse 3, we glory therefore because we have justification and peace with God in our tribulations. We even boast in them. We triumph in them, in spite of them, because we're justified. We know that our tribulations will mature us, and through the experience of, be, of being matured, we will just grow in patience and experience and hope, and the love of the Holy Spirit will be poured out within us. You see, when you go through deep afflictions, if you know you're justified, you know you're standing before God in a state of righteousness for Christ's sake, you see, all your trials will just sanctify you and make you ready for that great day when you can transition into Christ's presence forever. So justification helps us to assess our trials properly. And then fifthly, justification by faith is our shield whereby we quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Luther once said, if I didn't know I was justified, I would have been overwhelmed by Satan. But now I say to Satan, Satan, I don't belong to myself. I belong to my Savior. You're at the wrong address, Satan, when you come to attack me. You need to attack my head because I'm in Christ, and he's in heaven, and you can't reach him there. Besides, he's mightier than you, Satan, so I'm safe because you can't get him. You see, when you're justified in Christ, you can withstand the fiery darts of the wicked through God's justifying grace to you. So you don't have to say, but I'm too unworthy to be saved. I don't have enough of this or that to be saved. Yes, of course, every Christian wants more humility, more faith, more love, more hope. But that's just because you want a better and better relationship consciously every day with God. Your standing is secure in Christ. 
with God. Sixthly, justification by faith alone is the cutting edge of our evangelistic message. It's the only good news you have to bring to, to a stranger. When you meet someone and you begin to introduce Christianity to them, you should begin with justification. We're sinners. We need to be saved. There's someone who came and who did everything we need to have done for us. Justification is the best evangelistic message you can ever bring and you can ever know. And finally, seventhly, justification. Resting in justification by faith alone is the only way to die peacefully. It's the only way to, to go to meet God because we sin till the very end. But Paul says in Romans 5, 2, in the midst of describing all these benefits of justification I'm giving you now, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, when the famous Scottish theologian, John Brown of Haddington, was on his deathbed and came to gasp his last words, you know what they were? My Christ. With that, I can die. He's everything. When another Scottish theologian, David Dixon, you've heard of him, wrote that wonderful commentary in the Psalms, was on his deathbed. His friends gathered around. They asked him, what, he, what are you thinking right now? And this is what he said. I've taken all my bad deeds and I put them on a heap. I've taken all my good deeds in life as well and I put them on the same heap and I've run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus. He's my justification. So I die in peace. My friend, we live by justification. We die by justification. And justification is the blood passport, the blood of Jesus by which we enter into glory. So that's your only argument, but your praise be to God, your sufficient argument for being a Christian, the doing and the dying of Jesus. And when the day comes that you need to stand before Jesus and he asks you about yourself, all you need to do is to say, it's your doing and your dying by which I appear before you. Nothing in me, all in you, Lord Jesus, and the gates of heaven will go open, and you will cry out forever, worthy is the Lamb. To the Lamb be all the glory, because we are justified in Him alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, imputed to us, reckoned to our account by the passive and active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. By these things we live. By these things we stand before Thee. By these things we can die. O oh Lord, help us to know this doctrine in the depths of our soul, to find our life, our joy, our liberty, our peace, are all in it so that we could say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And please be with those in our midst, Lord, who do not know these things, who are living out of some other false foundation. Empty them of themselves and lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Show them their sin. Show them the gospel. 
and help them to know this only comfort in life and death that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless Harvest, we pray. Lord, be in the midst of this church continually. As thou hast been, so be thou in the future. And do, Lord, make the excommunication effective and fruit-bearing. And do bless the pastors as they uh, grieve over this, no doubt. Bless their labors. Bless Dale Van Dyke in particular in his uh, a brief sabbatical here. Re-energize him. Be near to him. And bless this flock, young and old, with a robust sense of justification by faith alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.